Thank you. I don't know how to, to, to be worthy of, of those words, but it's a joy to be with you. It's a privilege to be among men and women who are seeking to grow the kingdom of Christ. Uh, I love the, <laughs> the unity uh, and the spirit within this room. So thank you for allowing me the, the joy of, of joining you. Um, I'm an idiot who, who is seeking to follow Jesus, and that's, that's about as sophisticated as I get. Um, our, our topic this, this afternoon is really trying to think through how we engage our culture um, in the sort of present time with, with the various questions going on around LGBT uh, type issues. And I really want us to, to, to frame our thoughts by turning together to Mark chapter six. Um, just a couple of verses immediately before Jesus feeds the 5,000, there's just something in those verses that I think helps me think through how we move forwards, how we engage with this needy world around us. Um, we obviously are in a context where there is increasing skepticism about the Christian faith. People have little time for Christianity. Um, that's part of some bigger cultural, societal shifts that are going on, of course. And it's easy for us as, as Christians to respond, I think, in some incorrect ways. It's incorrect to see that the, the trends that are going on and merely to feel despair. Um, but it's easy to. We can, we can see what's going on and we can think, well, it, it just seems to be game over. Um, society is more and more hostile. We can, you know, just think, well, let's just retreat back into our, our little church huddle and pull up the drawbridge and just not go anywhere near our culture right now. That can't be right because Jesus is still on his throne. The word is still powerful. The spirit is still convicting the world of sin. The gospel still works. If those things are true, whatever is going on, we don't need to despair. Another danger is to capitulate, to think, well, these challenges are so significant, we actually need to reorder our faith, update our beliefs, so to speak, because we're just not going to survive otherwise. And again, that can't be right, because Jesus said heaven and earth may pass away, but his words will never pass away. If we're on the right side of Jesus, we will not be on the wrong side of history. We may have seasons that are, are more fruitful or less fruitful, but we do not need to capitulate. We do not need to adjust the word of God, however serious the cultural challenges get. But the main, I think, unhelpful response I want us to use these verses to address is the response of anger. As I look around, one of the, the kind of increasing responses I see from God's people to the way culture is going is to be angry. And again, part of me gets that. As we see a culture that is more and more hostile to us, it's easy to resent that. It's easy to take it personally. It's easy to get mad back. So let's turn to these verses in, in Mark 6. I'm going to read from verse, um, verse 30. So Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Don't you just love that they could do that? <laughs> and I guess we get to do that too, don't we? At the end of every Sunday, uh, as, we, as we close the day, we can come before Jesus and talk to him about all that we've, we've done and taught and bring that to him. And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. I'm going to make sure we have time to eat, by the way. That's an application to me from verse 31. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So great. Okay, 
People constantly around them, so much demand, no space, no room to breathe, no room for them to huddle together, no room for them to get some time with Jesus, no room for them to eat. So they go away, go away in the boat to a desolate place. Fantastic. No, verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So they see the disciples and Jesus going across in the boat and they think, we can see where they're going. They, they get everyone else to, I don't know what they do, get an Uber or something. They, they get there ahead of them. Verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Dang it. <laughs> we nearly made it. But here's the thing. Jesus response is something we can learn from. Let's think firstly about how Jesus feels in this moment. Verse 34, Jesus went ashore, he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. He's just been trying to escape this this crowd but he has compassion. Why? Because we're told they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, when we think of, of sheep, um, I'm assuming most of us are not, are not people who actually have anything to do with real physical sheep, so it's easy to have a, a kind of romantic notion of what sheep are like, and we think they're kind of cute and impish. Uh, that's the way they are in, in you know, animated shows. Sheep are lost and a danger to themselves and to others. Um, people who know about sheep tell me they are, they're just spectacularly dumb. <laughs> and it's one of the least flattering things the Bible has to say about us when it describes us as sheep. These people Jesus is surrounded by are lost and spiritually oblivious. But they're not being lost and sp- spiritually oblivious somewhere else off and out of the way. They're being lost and oblivious right in the middle of everything and getting right in the way of the disciples and of Jesus. But when Jesus sees this lost crowd around him, he's not irritated by them. And again, it's very easy for us to be, as we see where things are going morally in much of the Western world, as we see some of the freedoms of Christians that seem to be under threat, as we see that the public disdain that many culture formers have for Christianity, it is easy to get angry, many people do. It's easy to hate what is happening and to hate the people that seem to be making it happen. But when Jesus sees the lostness of the lost, he's not irritated, he's compassionate. He sees how helpless and adrift they are. That's an appropriate posture for all of us. It's not that there isn't culpability in culture for some of the things that are going on, particularly for some of the the lives that are being harmed by these trends. But we were just as lost ourselves. So what does it look like then for us to have Christ-like compassion on a lost culture around us? I want to suggest there are three things that we need to be working on. The first is this, we need to be understanding. Um, If we're going to reach the lost, we have to understand how people have ended up where they are. Um, There's all kinds of fun memes and gifs that, that... 
go around the internet about, about sheep. I was looking at a video someone shared the other day of a, of a sheep that had ended up in a ditch and you see the farmer kind of working. You've all seen this, right? It kind of eventually gets this sheep out. The sheep kind of bounces out, happy to be back out of the ditch, runs straight back into the ditch and is just stuck again. And that's, that's kind of the way we work. We need to understand how people got to where they are so that we can help them get out and stay out. To be compassionate, we need to understand the world around us. Um, Proverbs 18, verse 13, may be the most overlooked scripture when it comes to both pastoral ministry and evangelism, because Proverbs 18, verse 13 says this, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Ouch. And if you know Proverbs well, you'll know that folly and shame, that's, that's a big deal. And it's a danger for us as, as people of the word. We believe God has spoken. We have his words here in scripture. We believe that faith comes by hearing, Romans 10. And so we, we know that God's truth must be shared and proclaimed, but the danger is we miss the scriptural concerns that we be people who listen well. Um, James 1 verse 19 says everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. It's easy to be trigger happy with our tongues. But even if what we're saying is true, it may not be wise. And it's better to speak well than to speak a lot. And to, li- to speak well, we have to listen well. And we won't really know what to say if we're not taking the time to listen carefully to someone. Um, a few years ago, I was um, asked to give a talk for a, a, an apologetics ministry on the whole area of, of transgenderism, gender identity. Um, we thought that's an issue people are, are kind of feeling confusion about. That's an area where the, the gospel has unique things to, to say. So they gave me the, the title, How Can I Know My Gender? And we began to sort of advertise this event. It was gonna be a sort of live stream kind of thing. And initially, my my aim was, okay, this is an area where there's a lot of confusion and pain in the secular world. Let's bring some of the unique insights of the gospel to bear on that conversation. But as we began to kind of advertise that this was happening, one of the responses we began to see repeatedly was, was some Christians writing to this ministry saying, I can't believe you guys are asking such a stupid question. And I'm no longer gonna support this ministry. And it made me realize, okay, we now have two aims for this talk and not just one. Not just our wanting to serve the the secular world with the truth of, of Jesus, but actually now my other aim is I need to help Christians understand why some secular people are asking this question. Because if our response to what the world is saying is to say, well, that's a stupid question, I doubt we're gonna have a compelling answer to it. And if if someone is asking a question that does seem stupid to us, part of what we need to do is to think, well, how has this become the question that is the one that is most weighing on their hearts and minds right now? I I need to so get into their mind and their heart that I can see, okay, I, I can now see why this is the thing that is pressing down on them with so much urgency. I've seen people 
loved into the kingdom. I've seen people persuaded into the kingdom. I don't think I've ever seen anyone ridiculed into the kingdom. Um, Every person we meet, however they are behaving to us, whatever they may think of us, is someone made in God's image, someone who is worthy of our service, even our costly service, and someone who deserves our attention. That is true whether they're applauding us or protesting us. Everyone we meet has a unique story to share, and if we're willing to hear it, it will be our privilege to you. So we need to be people who have understanding. The second thing is we need to provide safety. Part of what's got people where they are culturally means that they feel vulnerable around us. Um, When I was at university, it was in the early, mid 90s, When I was on campus, I was at a secular university in in southern England. When I was on campus, people didn't want to be Christians because they thought we were quaint and old-fashioned and a bit too moral. Um, I spend a fair bit of time on university campuses right now, and people don't think we're quaint and old-fashioned. They think we're dangerous. And someone is more likely to say, I don't want to become a Christian because I think you guys are too immoral. We're seen as a threat. And for many of us, this is a new kind of cultural space for us to have to occupy. But again, if we listen well to people, we'll begin to see why they might find us threatening. Um, I was doing an event up in um, uh, a university in, in Canada just before the pandemic, and it was a, a Q&A event, a lot of LGBT students from campus there. Um, one student came up to the microphone and... and began to speak and really just had a massive go at, at me and Christianity. And he said, how can you expect me to come to a church where, you know, when, when Christians have been the ones who've been so misogynistic and pro-slavery and so abusive and listed just a whole long litany of woes against the church. And as I stood there listening to him, I remember thinking, okay, well, that's, that's, that's a mischaracterization and there's, there's actually, a, you've not got your history right on that and there's things you don't know about this. But as I was listening, I, I really sensed the Lord sort of showing me that this student wasn't, he wasn't angry so much as he was frightened. And he was masking a fear of me by, by attacking and lashing out. And I remember thinking, this is, this is absurd. I remember thinking, I, I don't think I've ever been frightening to anyone in my life. But this precious student before me right now is frightened of me precisely because I'm a representative of, of Jesus Christ, and that is tragic. So I remember thinking, okay, the the response to this is not to kind of whack the ball back with even more topspin. Actually, my response is, I'm just going to stand here and take it. As an ambassador of Jesus Christ, I'm going to let him vent at me, and I'm not going to fight back. I'll just absorb his anger. And then thank him for, for being open, for being honest, 
and for sharing what he shared. And we, we had a, a brief exchange and his whole demeanor changed. Because actually what he was looking for wasn't a debate. He was looking to feel heard. And he was looking to know if, if I was going to be safe for him to speak his mind. And we had the most wonderful conversation afterwards. Uh, we need to provide a sense of safety. That doesn't mean we don't ever push back. There are things we will need to push back on, but it means that we're trying to show people that it, it's okay for them to be them and to think what they're thinking around us. That's okay. Um, thirdly, we need to show humility. Humility about ourselves, humility about, about the wider church. There have been significant things the church has got wrong. There are some legitimate reasons why people might fear us. There are times when Christians have been and still are abusive and, and demeaning in the way they speak of LGBT people. There are times when the church has covered up abuse. Uh, there are times when the church has perpetuated racism. There are times when Christians have accrued political and social power for their own sake and at the expense of other people. And it doesn't harm the cause of Christ for us to be open about those things. It doesn't mean we always have to say we're wrong and everyone else is right. It does mean we don't have to be the winners the whole time. It is good for us to show that we know there are times when we failed. Because actually, even that becomes an apologetic for the goodness of Jesus. Because we can say, please don't judge him by, by how we've been. Judge how we've been by him. So compassion, I think, means that we need to, to be people of, of understanding, safety, and humility. But more than how Jesus feels is, is what he does. So again, verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he began to teach them many things. What does Jesus do with his compassion? He is about to feed these folks, but that's not the first thing he does. The first thing he does is he teaches them. The most compassionate thing we can do for our lost world is to bring them the words of Jesus. That's not the only thing we can do. There are many other ways we can, we can serve and minister to the needs of those around us. But it is, it seems to me, one of the most urgent things we can do. Um, I became a Christian just as I was turning 18. I didn't really have any Christian background, but I had a, a very good Christian friend who worked at the same coffee shop that I worked at on Saturdays. And he invited me to his church's youth ministry. And the first few times he invited me, I, I politely declined. Um, I was uh, performing catastrophically badly academically at high school. And uh, my parents had said I was only allowed out one evening a week during school term time. And I wasn't going to waste that one evening a week on anything to do with church. Um, but when I finished high school, had my final exams and had nothing else to do for a while, I thought, well, actually, why not? I thought, I, I really respect my Christian friend. I'd like to find out more about what he believes. I'd like to honor that friendship and find out you know, what makes him tick. I'll, I'll, so I'll go along just to see more about 
what he's into. And the first time I, I turned up to his church's youth ministry, I didn't need entertaining. I didn't particularly need more friends, although I made many wonderful new friends through that church. I needed saving. I, I needed to come under the message of Jesus. And wonderfully, at that, that youth ministry, that happened. I remember hearing that, that Christianity isn't about God coming to congratulate good people. It's about Jesus coming to find lost people. And I was a pretty well-behaved teenager. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't do drugs. I didn't listen to most of the music my peers were listening to. But I began to realize I was lost. I, if there was a God who made me, I realized I didn't know who he was. And I was probably supposed to. And I figured, that's probably on me, <laughs> rather than being on him. Whatever else we have to give people, if we're not giving them Jesus, we're not loving them fully. So Jesus taught them, but also a dear friend of mine pointed this out recently. Jesus began to teach them many things. That's interesting. Jesus, Jesus didn't just start off with one kind of teaching point and just keep at that until they got it and then he could move on to the next one. He seemed to just kind of throw a bit of everything at them. And it's a reminder to me that the, the truth and person of Jesus is multifaceted. So often my, my gospel kind of presentations can be very flat and samey. But Jesus' teaching about himself isn't flat and monochrome. And it's a reminder to me there are so many potential starting points for, for a lost person in Jesus. And those potential starting points to the different angles that are available to us, those start to come obvious to us, again, as we spend time with people and as we listen to them. Uh, they need to know the one who won't break a bruised reed. I was talking to someone recently and, and began to get a sense of the deep hurt that was part of their story. And I remember thinking, okay, I think the first thing I want them to know is that Jesus does not break a bruised reed. He is someone they can trust their wounds to. Uh, with someone else I was, I was talking to, I, I suddenly remembered the woman at the well in John 4 and what she said immediately after she was with Jesus, she went back to the village and she said to the people there, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And I remember thinking... Okay, I think this friend needs to know he's not going to make sense of his life until he comes to Jesus. There are so many potential starting points with Jesus. He's complex, and that's part of what makes him compelling. And we are still learning these many things about him, aren't we? So that's what Jesus does. He begins to teach them many things about him. And I want us just to spend a, a, the final moments thinking through what that might look like for us. Some of the ways in which we can, hopefully by God's grace, fruitfully begin to teach people many things about Jesus, particularly when it comes to these LGBT discussions. 
the first thing is I want, to, I want my skeptical friends to, to see where their doubts are in fact Christian doubts. Uh, many of the people, many of the concerns people might have about the Christian faith, I want them to realize the concerns they have are based on Christian principles. Some of you will have come across um, Tom Holland, um, not the Spider-Man actor, but the, the, the historian, the boring one. Um, <laughs> he's a, a British ancient historian and uh, he's written an amazing book called Dominion where he's basically trying to say, we're, we're not as post-Christian in the Western world as we think we are. So many of the values we, we think we cherish as, as secular people haven't come from secularism, they've come from Christianity. It's an astonishing book. He was someone who, he, he opens the book by saying he, as, a, as an unbeliever, he'd always assumed the Greco-Roman world would be the one where he felt at home. He didn't like Christendom. And he thought, maybe those are the guys I'll feel at home with. That was the birthplace of democracy and, and all the rest of it, you know, civilization. But he says in the book, as he began to study professionally the Greco-Roman world, he began to realize how, how brutal it was how lacking in compassion it was. And he began to realize the very things that he thought would make, them feel, make him feel at home in that world actually have come to him from Christianity. So much so he's now naming Christ as his Lord. It's worth reading that book, it's amazing. So when people say that the, the Bible promotes injustice, the standard of justice they're appealing to is normally the standard of justice the Bible has given them. Uh, Glenn Scrivener is a, a, a wonderful Australian evangelist and, and Christian writer. He says the thought world of the Bible is so vast that even the reasons people have for not believing it have come from the Bible. Don't you love that? <laughs> So the very things people think they have against the Christian faith are appealing to standards they've received from the Christian faith. So when they say the church is unjust and the church has been pro-slavery, the church has done this or that, again, they're appealing to a sense of individual human dignity that actually we have received from Jesus himself. So I do want people to realize that many of their doubts are in fact Christian doubts. Uh, secondly, I want people to realize that the gospel fulfills what they're really looking for. Um, there's a British theologian called Daniel Strange who, who's done a lot of kind of cultural analysis and engagement, and he uses the phrase subversive fulfillment. What we have with, with the gospel of Jesus Christ is the subversive fulfillment of many of the things our culture is hankering after. Subversive because it's a way of showing culture you've misunderstood the thing that you want, and you're looking for it in the wrong place and in the wrong way, but fulfillment because you actually do find the truth of it in Jesus Christ. And so as we encounter different ideologies and worldviews around us, it's always worth thinking, well, what, where is the common grace here? Where is the, the grain of truth? What's the part that they've got right? What is it that I can affirm in this particular cultural ideology? Um, one example, I'm thinking this through at the moment, so this is, this is, this is a work in progress, so receive it as such. But I've been thinking through the whole issue of intersectionality. This idea that um, it's, it's those who belong to minority and victim 
backgrounds who actually have the real angle on truth and therefore have greater moral authority to speak into certain issues than other people. Um, taken to an extreme, that is, becomes very censorious and, and silencing of, of all kinds of people, especially Christians. But I remember thinking, no, actually there is truth that we can have collective blind spots. And that those who belong to a majority culture may have collective blind spots they're not even aware of, that those in minority cultures can help them see. There's something that there's, there's something right about it, but there's also the case that people can be wrong about the things they're right about, if that makes sense. And so part of me is thinking, well, if, if part of the drive with intersectionality is to, is to increase the voices of those who are, belong to minority statuses, particularly to those who belong to oppressed groups historically, that makes me think, well, by your own thinking, you really need to listen to Jesus. Because he found himself on the wrong end of pretty much every sort of power dynamic going around at the time. But more than that, if you're concerned about majority power harming minority groups, well, one way of responding to that, rather than trying to strip every majority group of every piece of power it might have, what if there's a worldview that seeks to use power for the sake of those who have none? What if there's a belief system out there that actually takes whatever power it has and uses it for the sake of not just those who are weak, but even of those who are enemies. The gospel actually fulfills what we're looking for. That's all very incomplete and works in progress, so don't you know, hold me to any of that. Um, that's kind of what I'm, I'm trying to think through at the moment. Part of that then is, I wanna show you how the gospel levels the playing field. Uh, back at that event in Canada I was speaking at, um, the, the final question I had during the Q&A came from a, a lesbian couple who, who just came up to the microphone and said, listen, why can't you just treat us the same as everybody else? And after the event was over, I was chatting with a few individuals, a, a young lad came up to me and he said, listen, I'm, I'm gay, I'm not a Christian, but he said, I've, I've read your book as God Anti-Gay twice. So I apologized to him for that. Um, and he said, I'm, I'm actually reading through Mark's gospel and meeting up with the pastor at the moment and talking it through. And I thought, oh, wow, that's amazing. He said, I'm, I'm also going to a, a church youth group, uh, a church Bible study group, and attending church. And I said, okay, well, you, you're doing more Christian stuff than most Christians I know. <laughs> okay, um, come and speak to some of my church members about these things. <laughs> so I said to him, what, what is drawing you to, to look at Christianity so much? And he said, I realize Jesus treats me the same as everybody else. So he actually had come up to me to say he was really angry at the, the, the two women who'd asked that question. So I said, okay, tell, tell me what you mean by that. And he said, well, I realized as I was reading through Mark's gospel that Jesus treats me the same as he treats everybody else. And I began to realize, yeah, of course he does. 
Jesus doesn't separate in the beginning of Mark's gospel. He doesn't say, let's have all the kind of LGBT people over here and I've got a message for you and then let's have all the other people over here and I've got a, a different message for you. Jesus puts us all in the same bucket of, hey, repent and believe. And I said to him, how, how has it come to mean so much to you that Jesus treats you the same? And he said, well, I'm, I'm the president of an LGBT advocacy group at, at another school. And he said, it's all about how we're different and how we need to be treated differently. He said, we need different laws, we need different protections. But he said, when it's Pride Month, we're always trying to think, which companies can we kind of guilt into giving us the most stuff because we're different. And he said the reason he was angry with that, that couple for asking their question was he wanted to say to them, which way do you want this? Do you want to be treated the same or do you want to be treated differently? And it suddenly struck me listening to this, this guy and I was so grateful to him for his, his honesty. But it suddenly struck me that there is a kind of equality you get with the gospel of Jesus Christ that you don't find in a secular culture that prides itself on equality. And so he was feeling drawn to Christ. And guy is near the kingdom. And it made me realize, yes, there are, there are different experiences we need to learn from with one another, but actually, Jesus puts all of us in the same boat. When it comes to LGBT issues, there may be someone we meet who is identifying as something we've never heard of and is into things that has never even remotely occurred to us to be into, but we're thinking, well, I, I don't know what it's like to have that form of temptation or that form of desire, but I know what it's like to be a sexual sinner. I do know what it's like to be broken in this area of life. We are ultimately in the same boat here. The experiences may be different, and I'm not going to say, yeah, I know how it feels, because I don't. But at the same time, I do feel a sense of solidarity I remember the first time I had a, a privilege of meeting a, a trans person who was, again, happy to meet with a, an evangelical pastor to talk about their story and their experiences. And I remember thinking, okay, what you've gone through is stuff I've, I find it really hard to relate to. I've, I've never sort of had to, to deal with that kind of stuff personally. But I do know what it's like to be a broken human being. I do know what it's like to live with a broken body. I do know what it's like to, to live with a, with a very kind of confused sense of identity. And again, it made me think, even though that person's story was very, very different to mine, and again, I was not going to say to them, oh yeah, I know how that feels because I don't. Nevertheless, they are far more like me than they are different. And so there's still a baseline sense of solidarity. And so in those situations, one of my questions is, what does it feel like to be you? As best you can understand. I'll try my best to understand. I would love to know. And then here's the final thing as we, as we seek to teach people many things about Jesus. And this is so painfully obvious, but I need the painfully obvious on repeat. We keep pointing people to Jesus. I have nowhere else to take people. And I mean this in, in various ways. I mean this in terms of where their hope is going to be found. And so with that, with that precious trans student, they were already beginning to, to do the hormone things and were looking further down the road to sort of surgical things. I remember thinking, 
hope that you need is not going to be found in what you can do to your body. It's only going to be found in what Jesus was willing to do to his body for your sake. That is our hope. But I also want to point people to Jesus in the sense of, I, I want Jesus to bother them. And so I was you know, talking to someone else about issues of, of human sexuality and they said, you can't really believe what you believe today. I talked about marriage being between a man and a woman and, and that kind of stuff. You, you just can't believe that now. I said, I get, I get that, I really do. I know why you feel that way. But here's the thing you, you don't understand is what you're actually doing is you're telling me to stop being a follower of Jesus because I'm, I believe what I believe about these issues precisely because I believe what I believe about Jesus. And I'm, I'm getting my understanding of marriage from him here. So if you want me to change my beliefs about marriage, you're actually going to have to tell me to stop being a follower of Jesus. Do you have the authority to tell me to stop being a follower of Jesus? And I said that to people a few times, and most times people have enough kind of sense of, of self-awareness to say, okay, I hadn't, I hadn't realized that was what was going on, and, and no, I don't quite feel comfortable telling you to stop being a follower of Jesus. But every once in a while, someone will say to me, yeah, if that's what Jesus teaches, you shouldn't follow him. So I go, okay. Just, just tell me, please, what, what do you have going for you that Jesus doesn't have going for him that means I should follow what you say on this and not him? And by the way, he died for me and rose again. That's where the bar is currently set. <laughs> if, you can, if you can raise it, I'm genuinely, genuinely interested. <laughs> but I, I wanted this person to realize their issue wasn't with me. Their issue isn't with the church. The issue isn't with some entity called Christianity. Their issue's with Jesus. I'm wanting Jesus to bother them on this issue because at some point they've got to reckon with, what am I going to do with him? He's the issue. I think it's the same with the stuff on, on the environment. I'm just beginning to do some work on, on kind of Christians in the environment. I've no idea what the answer is other than this planet belongs to Jesus. It was made by him and for him. And therefore, whatever else we're thinking about climate and ethics and all of those things, the starting point has got to be We're not going to understand this planet properly unless we understand that it's for Jesus Christ. Which to my Christian friends, I want to say that means we, we do need to be concerned for the environment because it belongs to Jesus and we're stewarding it for him. This is, this is not ours to muck around with, this is his. And we want to honour him with it, whatever that looks like. And I want to say to my secular friends, I want them to be bothered by Jesus. I'm going to say, you're not going to understand environmental stewardship correctly unless you understand who owns this place. We have to keep pointing people to Jesus. We've got nowhere else to take them. Um, I saw in a friend's office, they had a little saying framed on the wall and it said, those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. I love that. Those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. And it's true, by the way, if you watch a music video and take away the sound, it quickly looks absurd. 
a lot of people strutting and pouting and, and all that kind of stuff. You put the, the music back on and you think, okay, yeah, this is starting to make a bit of sense now. But it's true that the decisions that we make as, as Christian men and women, the ways we, de- we seek to live, our lives are not going to be fully explainable to our non-Christian friends unless they understand who Jesus is to us. Whether we're talking about sexuality, whether we're talking about any number of things, those who hear not the music think the dance is mad, and the music that we are dancing to is, is the person of Jesus Christ. And so to my, my thoughtful secular friends, I'll say to them, listen, the life choices I've made personally in terms of my own kind of sexual ethics and, and seeking to, to follow Jesus, those are not going to make sense to you unless you understand who Jesus is to me. And so whatever it is you're wanting to bring me on board with in terms of secular thinking and agenda and all the rest of it, you've actually got to recognize that it's, it's Jesus that I'm following. And so if you want to change my mind on whatever it is, you've got to change my mind on Jesus. Because... He made me. He knows me better than I know myself. He loves me more than I love myself. And ridiculously, he's more committed to my ultimate joy than even I am. So I'd be a fool not to follow him. And so would you. Let me pray for us.